I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 22. As I prayed, we come to the final portion of the book of Revelation. Always a little bittersweet when we, uh, we've been camped out for a while and we come to the end. There's, uh, I find at least a, a little bit of sadness as we leave behind this. But I, my hope and my prayer is that we don't leave behind the message of the Revelation. We don't leave behind all that Christ has been saying to us and wants to say yet today, but that it would, uh, that it would be in our hearts and in our minds and that, that Christ would continue to work in us through His Word in this final book of our uh, biblical canon. Edgar C. Wisenant, some of you perhaps have heard that name before. He passed away May 16, 2001. He was a, uh, a NASA engineer and also a follower of Christ, a student of the Bible. Uh, some of you may recall a book that he published in 1998. It was entitled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. He emailed 300,000 copies of that book to ministers across the United States. Another 4.5 million copies of that book sold in bookstores and elsewhere. He, he is quoted as saying this, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. A little bit ironically, there was a sequel, a second book released in 1989 called The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. Uh, two other books followed in 1993 and 1994 by Wisenant. Uh, clearly, he was wrong, dead wrong. And I think safely uh, to say that, that that what he was proposing was, in fact, heretical. And we say that without hesitation because uh, Jesus himself said this about the end times. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Uh, it was wrongheaded of him to seek to study the Scriptures, specifically the book of Revelation, and try and nail down a specific chronological timeline of the end. Uh, he is certainly not alone, wasn't it? Uh, he, many other people have done and said and, and believed all kinds of things uh, based on the book of Revelation, or more accurately, I would say, based on uh, a faulty understanding of this book. I have contended from the start that the Revelation is not a crystal ball that provides us with a chronological timeline of, of how the world we, as we know it will come to an end. It's not this puzzle to, for us to figure out so that we know stuff about history in advance. It is about Jesus and about following Jesus. I have contended that this is a discipleship manual, uh, that it is about... Uh, what it looks like for us to love and worship and follow after Jesus, specifically in the face of the temptation to compromise with the world and in the face of, of external pressure, opposition and persecution, because as we have seen, we live in the midst of a holy war, a holy war that has already been won, but a holy war waged against God and the people of God by Satan and all the forces of evil and all those who reject Christ. Any reading of this book, any reading of the Revelation that misses that point, that this is about Jesus and what it means for us to follow Jesus as disciples, misses the heart of this book. This morning we come to the end of the Revelation, the wrap-up, the epilogue. 
And as we'll walk through this final piece of this magnificent book, it may seem on the one hand that this is a bit of a, a, a scattering of things, a, a potpourri of a variety of matters, and at some level I suppose that's true. Yet on the other hand, what we encounter here is a marvelous conclusion, uh, a, a reminder of what is central, what is vital for us to bear in mind as we close this book, as we live our lives as disciples of Jesus in this present world. Now, at this point in the Revelation, in our study of it, the, the drama of the apocalypse has come to an end. Uh, it began with John on the island of Patmos. Now an old man in his mid-80s, he's been deposited there by Rome because of his faith in Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, there John encountered the glorified Christ. On the Lord's Day, he was worshiping, and in the Spirit, he suddenly heard a sound like a trumpet, and he turned to see the voice, and there before him was Christ in all his glory, exalted before him. And Jesus would commission John to write seven messages, letters to seven churches scattered along an ancient Roman postal route in the province of Asia. We walked through those seven messages, those seven letters to those churches. Uh, we witnessed this uh, this glorious scene in the heavenly throne room where John looks and he sees the one seated upon the throne that is above every other throne and the lamb who was slain for us. We watched as Christ, the worthy one, broke the seven seals on, on God's scroll of destiny, the scroll that contained all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing. And we saw a preview of all that was to come upon the earth, violence and war and famine and death and martyrdom, and judgment. Uh, we were introduced to the church victorious in the first interlude season where John looks and he sees a multitude numbered 144,000, and in the next vision, suddenly this multitude is beyond number, standing before the throne praising God. We heard seven trumpet blasts which brought with them seven acts of temporal judgment, judgment that happened but was only partial, each one also an invitation to come, to repent, to turn to God. We were introduced to a scene that revealed the reason behind the suffering of God's people. A dragon, Satan, enraged at his defeat, through his two agents, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, the false prophet, who will wage war against the people of God. Then came the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out upon the earth, upon all those who persisted in their rejection of Christ and refused to repent. What followed was the tale of two cities, a tale of two women. This is where we've been walking through this last portion of the revelation over the last month or so. First, we encountered Babylon the Great, the harlot, Rome, the empire and the city, judged by God for her persistent rebellion and rejection of Christ. And then, over the last weeks, we have encountered, we have witnessed the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven to earth, and God making his dwelling with us, the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem we saw last week, the city that is a cube, the city that is the holy of holy, is holies. it is the place of God's presence, and we read that God will dwell with us that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that no longer will there be any curse. That brings us to the epilogue. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read Revelation 22, verses 6 
to the end of the book. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give each to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So what I want to do with you in the time we have is essentially walk through this and answer three questions. What is it we believe? What is it we are are to believe? Who do we worship? How do we respond? What we believe, how, who we worship, how we respond. Uh, The first thing I want to highlight is, is what we encounter in the very first words of our, the first verse of, of the epilogue of our text. We read, the angel said to me, is John, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Here at the conclusion of the book, at the conclusion of the apocalypse, the angel emphasizes to John that the message he has received is trustworthy and true, faithful and true. In fact, those are the exact same words that were used to describe Christ himself in chapter 19 when Jesus comes out of heaven, uh, this mighty warrior Jesus on a white horse. He is described as faithful and true. The exact same words in the original. The angel makes this point, the central point being made here is that you can and you should trust this. You can and you should believe this. This book is the very words of God. You can take it to the bank, count on it. Live your life based upon it. Remember the title of this book, the the Revelation, the the Apocalypse, the Unveiling? In it, uh, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He, He lifts the cover off the box so that we, his followers, so that we who encounter this book, who hear it, can understand, who we can see what is really real, that things are not as they would appear. 
This book seeks to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future, and it sets the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. Not all is as it appears, and we need to know that. This book is God's word to us, revealing to us what is truly true, what is really real. For a believer, a follower of Christ living in 96 AD, while the emperor Domitian was on the throne, while he was Caesar, Rome was at the peak of its power and its might, Already there were signs, already there was suffering in some churches, already at least one person, Anipus, had been killed because of his faith. Persecution, a, a great holocaust of suffering, lay on the horizon for those who would remain faithful to Jesus. And into that context, Jesus gave these words to his people. Uh, this book, this apocalypse, this unveiling of the truth, and now as the book comes to an end, he wants to emphasize that. He wants to remind them that all that they have heard, all that they have discovered in this apocalypse is true. The very words of God. Take it to the bank. Count on it. Four times in these verses, this final section of the book, uh, this, this text, this book, Revelation, is called a word of prophecy four times. And remember, prophecy is at its core. At its core, it is not predictive. That is, sometimes prophecy speaks of the future. Sometimes it reveals what is to come. But at its core, prophecy is the declaration of God's word. It is the declaration of the truth from God. And that is what is announced here by the angel. Right off the top, these words are trustworthy and true, faithful and true. Despite appearances to the contrary, Almighty God and the Lamb sit upon the throne that is above every other throne. Despite appearances to the contrary, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Despite appearances to the contrary, God is sovereign and he is in control of all of history, bringing it all to its appointed end. Despite appearances to the contrary, all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing will be fulfilled. Despite appearances to the contrary, the followers of the Lamb already reign. They will live even if they die. Jesus says... I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The root and offspring of David, simply he's, he's the one from whom David came and he is also descended from David. He is the Messiah, a Davidic king. But I want to draw your attention more to the last title that Jesus gives to himself. I am the bright morning star. That is the last title that Jesus will give to himself in the revelation. What does that mean? What is the significance that Jesus says, I am the bright morning star? Well, here's what Daryl Johnson writes. The morning star appears when the night has reached its greatest degree of darkness. Indeed, the morning star only appears when the night has reached its greatest degree of darkness. Although it is still dark and although there may be three or four hours until daybreak, when you see the morning star, you know the night is over. Despite appearances to the contrary, the words of this book, the words of the revelation of the apocalypse are true and trustworthy 
Believe them. Put your confidence in them. Base your life on them. That's what we are to believe. Who we worship. At this point in, in our text, John, remember John in his mid-80s, he's, he's witnessed all this. He's taken in these visions. John is utterly overwhelmed by this experience and he falls down in worship. But there's a problem. He falls down in worship, but the problem is he falls down to worship before an angel. It's actually the second time this happens in the Revelation. John did this first back in Revelation 19. There, I didn't draw your attention to it. Just after the fourfold hallelujah, John falls down before uh, before an angel to worship. And this is what we read in chapter 19. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Here, we read almost the identical words. And when he had heard and seen them, that is the things that have been revealed to him, John says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Do you think perhaps that with these two moments where John the prophet, John the disciple of Christ, falls down before an angel in worship and and he is corrected, the angel says, don't do that. Worship God. Worship God. Do you think maybe that, that God is trying to tell us something here as we get to the end of the book? Eugene Peterson writes, people get interested in everything in this book except God. Losing themselves in symbol hunting, intrigued with numbers, speculating with frenzied imaginations and on times and seasons, despite Jesus' severe stricture against it. Remember what Jesus said back in Acts 1, 7? It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And yet it's so easy and so prevalent that we as, as Christians get, we, we get unduly interested in the envelope and we miss the content. This book is to lead us to worship God. It is about God, the one who sits upon the throne and the lamb who is slain. Friends, if we walk away from our study of this book and our hearts have not been moved to worship God, to to give glory to the one who sits upon the throne and to the lamb, then we have missed the point. We've missed the point. More than anything, this needs to lead us to the feet of God Almighty and of the Lamb. That we would fall down before Him and Him alone and worship Him and give Him glory. That's what the revelation is about. It is about Him and all that He has done out of love and grace for us. Third question, how do we respond? And there are three responses that I want to highlight for you this morning. First, we are to respond in obedience. Do you remember the first beatitude that we encountered, the first blessed are statement that we encountered in our study way back in chapter 1? 
Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Take to heart literally means to keep. Here again, we find a blessing. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Sorry, that's not... But this, this blessing upon us, those who keep this word. To keep it means to obey it. Obey this word of prophecy. Now, I, I don't believe that most of God's people approach this book. I don't believe that most of us approach this book with the posture of obedience. Not that we set out to disobey it. We just, we don't tend to think of it as that sort of book that you obey. I mean, it's, it's often we, we think of it as a science fiction-ish kind of book that contains this weird symbolism. And if we can just figure it out, we'll, we'll understand more about the end of the world. We think of it as a book about the future, but it really is a book about present, how we live as disciples of Jesus. I've contended from the start that this book is not a chronology of end times. Though it reveals things about the future, it was written to believers in the first century, calling them to repentance, calling them to loyalty, to fidelity, to faithfulness to Jesus, calling them to obey. You see, in the Revelation, sin, sin is fundamentally foremost a matter of unfaithfulness. Sin is adultery. The church is the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. And sin is about compromising with the world, with Rome. To use the imagery of the Revelation, it is messing around in the bed with the harlot about worshiping what is not God as God, about compromise. And so Jesus gives this revelation to the churches in Asia Minor and to us to call us to faithful obedience, to loyalty to Him. It's a warning against compromise. For some of them who were not ready, some of them who were compromised, if you recall those messages in chapters 2 and 3, it was a call back to loyalty, a call back to to faithfulness. And Jesus wants to encourage them and he wants to encourage us to follow him faithfully, to follow him in obedience, no matter how hard, no matter what suffering may come. One of the major reasons that I chose to preach this book was my growing conviction that the church today needs to be called back to obedience even with an understanding that suffering may come. There are too many in the church today who are in bed with other gods, too many who have compromised with Babylon, with the world. And we need to hear the words of Christ in this book that say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Even if it means suffering. Suffering economically, suffering socially, even physically, and you know, with the way things are going in our world, the erosion, the attack on freedom, who knows what the future will bring? God knows. For years I've said, you know, we may not face the kind of suffering that brothers and sisters face elsewhere, like the brother that we read about earlier this morning in North Africa who gave his life to the Lord. But I'm less and less convinced that that might not 
B, what lies in the future. And I want to say, are we ready? Are we ready to follow faithfully, even in the face of suffering? Understand that there are many voices today that in the name of God are saying that God wants you to have your best life now. That he wants you to enjoy the good life now. And to be sure, brothers and sisters, God loves us and God has blessed us in many ways. There are many good gifts that he gives us that we can receive and enjoy. But know this. It should be clear from our study of the Revelation that life of following Jesus may mean, will mean for these believers, will mean for many that there will be suffering that we have to walk through. That as we are faithful to Christ, it will lead to suffering. I remember being moved profoundly by that when I was in North Africa about 15 years ago. Uh, One family that we visited, a family of seven, my traveling companion and I were out for a walk with him a few blocks from their home. In this this smaller city, far away from the capital, very, very few Westerners there. And as we walked, we came to a pile of boulders, and he shared with us that a couple months earlier, he'd been attacked by a group of Muslim men who had begun to stone him, and why they stopped, he did not know. But that moment for me, hearing that story, this husband, this father of five, Still there. Still there because he and his wife felt called by God to be there, to proclaim the hope that is found in Jesus, no matter what it brought. They didn't run. They didn't leave. He pointed to that pile of stones, a monument to their faithfulness, their willingness to suffer as they obeyed Christ's call in their lives. The second, we need to respond with readiness. We need to respond with readiness. Story is told of a, uh, a young pastor who was preaching this text. And as he, he quoted the words of Christ, Behold, I am coming quickly. He lost his train of thought. And so he did what sometimes preachers do. He repeated himself. Behold, I am coming quickly. And he still didn't remember what he was supposed to say next. So he said it a third time, Behold, I am coming quickly. And he was so flustered that he tripped off the stage and landed in the lap of a poor elderly woman in the front of the church. And he was very apologetic. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she said, Don't worry, you warned me three times. I should have known. There is this sense, this clear sense of the imminence of Christ's return. Uh, in, In verse 10, John is instructed to not seal up this scroll. Typically, apocalypses uh, were sealed up. In Daniel, he's instructed to seal up his scroll until the end. In other words, in Daniel's situation, a considerable time needs to pass. Seal this up. This is for later. But John is instructed, don't seal this up. And in fact, three times in our text, Jesus says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. So what are we to make of this note of the imminence of the end? After all, it's been nearly two millennia and since John wrote the Revelation and Jesus has not returned yet. Is that quickly? Is that soon? I think the best way to understand this note of imminence is that every generation is closer to that moment. And that Christ's return could come 
at any moment. Now, that's not told to us to scare us. Some of you may have watched the movie, I think it was 1972, A Thief in the Night. Story of young Patty, this woman, gets married, and uh, she, she wakes up and hears on the radio this announcement that millions of people have disappeared, and she finds out her own husband is gone, and the rapture has happened, and, and she, the UN has formed this government, and she's running from them because she doesn't want to commit herself to Christ, but she doesn't want to get the mark of the beast, and she's running, and at the end of the movie, she falls off a bridge and dies, and then wakes up and realizes, oh, it's all a dream. And then the radio goes off, and they announce that millions of people are gone. It's just this movie that can freak you out. That's, that's not what this note of imminence is about. The imminence of the end, the imminence of Christ's return. But we need to know and take to heart that the end could come at any time. And the goal, again, is not to scare us, but to in, inspire us to be prepared. That message comes through the New Testament over and over and over again, that we are to live with a, a sense of preparedness. As disciples of Jesus, we should always have our eyes fixed on the future, uh, our eyes fixed on Christ fixed on the reality that Christ is coming again, that Christ will bring history as we know it to an end. And it's so easy to be distracted and to not think about that. To not think about the fact that in a moment Christ could be here. We are to live with a sense of preparedness, knowing that Christ will come and bring all things to an end. I'm sure most of you have heard the this, this sentiment expressed that one can be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good, but C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, challenges that notion. He writes this. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. We are to be ready we are to live with our eyes fixed on the truth that Christ is returning, that Christ will come. And we are to live in light of that. It's not a thing to scare us. It is a thing, though, to, to shape us, to change how we live our lives in this world. Do we long for Christ's return? Do we look for Christ's return? Are we like Paul, who says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain? Do we long for him? Do we long for the day when our faith shall be sight? Do we long for the day when there will no longer be any curse, where there will be no tears, where we will see God's face and he will dwell with us? We are to respond with preparedness. And fourth, we are to respond with proclamation. We are to live as inviters. The gospel that we believe, that through faith in Christ, who died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, that, that through trusting in Him, we are washed, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we are purified. And not only that, but we are clothed with His perfection. That the Father looks at us, us and sees the righteousness of Jesus. That He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The, the good news that we believe, the good news that is our hope, the good news that fuels our lives as disciples of Christ needs to be good news that we we proclaim to the world who needs Christ. We read in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let those who hear say, come, let those who are thirsty come and all who wish to take the free gift of the water of life. These words echo the words of Isaiah the prophet where we read, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. 
And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affairs. We are created to know God, to love God, and we will only find satisfaction and life in Christ. And here, as the revelation closes, there's this invitation. The Spirit says, come. And the bride, the church, the people of God say, come. Come to those who hear and say, come. Let those who are thirsty come and all who wish to take the free gift of the water of life We are to respond as proclaimers of the good news, proclaimers of this invitation to all around us. And if you are with us this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to say to you, come. Come and and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Receive the grace of Christ. Receive the love of Christ. Receive from Christ life. Come. Come and receive the satisfaction that your soul longs for. You can look and look and look and you can try and fill that that void, that space in your heart with a myriad of other things, but nothing will satisfy because you were made for Christ. And here, as this book ends, as our scriptures come to a close, Christ says, come. And the church, we need to cry out, come. Come, receive life, receive the water of life. We were created for Christ. We need to proclaim that, believers. We have a life-giving message. We have the gospel that gives hope. We have the most incredible invitation. And we are to respond to the revelation by being proclaimers of the good news. Come, take the free gift of water, of life. This book is not a timeline of the end of the world. It is about Christ. It is about God. It is about what it means for us to live as his disciples. I pray that through the apocalypse, through this pulling back of the curtain, through this lifting off of the cover, uh, through this revelation that Jesus has opened our eyes, that he has grabbed a hold of our imaginations and of our hearts, and that as we conclude our study we will each have been changed by Christ, that we will love him more deeply, that we will trust him more completely, that we will obey him more faithfully, and that we will long for him more earnestly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come.